Now, if you've been following this tale with any attention whatsoever, you may have noticed that this particular teacher man doesn't handle all situations perfectly. I was overwhelmed with homesickness in Shanghai, got drunk and utterly failed to play piano on stage in a bar, fell into a depression and made a table out of bamboo just to have something to do, and got sick and angry with my colleague and my manager. It's not a great record so far, considering that I was only four months in. Where was I going wrong? Was it me? Was it China? Was it both of us? This isn't what travelling is supposed to be like. You're more enlightened traveller would scoff and say that one should simply be able to become one with the local culture. This is the spirit of the traveller, after all. The expat who respects the idiosyncrasies of their new home. Well, that's how Penny did it, and she was even more irate than me. So that's not the answer. I think most people don't usually live up to that ideal. We all bring the baggage of home with us. And living abroad, not holidaying, but living abroad is a process of acclimatization. And I don't think that we should pretend to be somehow above all that, especially if, like me, you have quite bad anxiety and just booking a train ticket makes you want to crawl into a hole. Cultures that are markedly different, like China if you're from the UK, make the challenge all the more well, challenging. The best we can hope for is to be aware of the pressures that can come from being thrown into unfamiliar lifestyles and habits and not start throwing food around in restaurants. So the next couple of episodes touch upon some of the cultural cornerstones of China, concepts such as guanxi and mianzi, and the importance of hierarchy and status, how these concepts are understood from a Western perspective, either generously or not so generously. So important are these aspects of Chinese culture that they can make or break a man. And so we'll be telling the story of one of China's most famous fools from grace, a man who seemed to have the system fixed in his favour, until it all came tumbling down. At the end of the last episode, there was me and two teacher colleagues, Penny, an Arizona man, eating in the canteen, surrounded by those oblong tins of limp vegetables, each with our own gripe. I'd been unwell and been told off for it. Penny felt that no one was helping her to teach her students. An Arizona man felt that he and his daughter were being exploited for their picture-perfect smiles and his bodacious guitar-shredding excellence. We were all somehow united by this sense of disillusionment, left out of things which mattered, things which might make our jobs, maybe our lives, more meaningful. Woe was us. So there we were, the poor foreign teachers who expected not just a decent salary, not just a nice room with a TV, not just free e-bikes and half-priced coffee and a day off for Christmas, but also a common understanding about education and business practices. The Chinese get a fair whack of cruel judgment from Westerners, and it's not just because of the political system that we, apart from those tankies on Twitter, find so anathema to our democratic values. It's also a cultural thing, and this can provoke a pushback. People got upset with David Sedaris's comical article, which was called Chicken Toenails, Anyone? Which I think I mentioned way back at the start of this podcast. But his remarking on the spitting and the unsightly toilets and the less appetizing food is on the tamer side of things. The American Arthur H. Smith's 1894 book, Chinese Characteristics, is a classic of Western judgment on the Chinese. Smith was in China for decades, during China's century of humiliation. But he wasn't writing one of those anti-Chinese yellow peril books that were also popular at the time. 
still, it does contain many of the stereotypes that we now have about China. I often heard them from the Lao Wai, who invariably have something to say about the Chineseness of the Chinese. I found Smith's book in Cloudy Coffee, a cafe which opened up down the road near the university. I ordered a cup of green tea, served in a dinky, clear plastic cup, and sat down to a spot of colonial reflection. A glance at the contents page gives you a taste of what's in store. The chapter titles inspired by Smith's take on the Chinese. We have chapter 8, The Talent for Indirection. Chapter 12, Contempt for Foreigners. Chapter 13, The Absence of Public Spirit. Chapter 21, The Absence of Sympathy. Chapter 24, Mutual Suspicion. And chapter 25, The Absence of Sincerity. It's a fairly inglorious start. Smith's overall analysis is not negative, per se. He also talked a lot about the respect for elders, benevolence and contentment. But China's condition is deemed troubling enough to warrant a final chapter extolling the virtues of Christianity and prescribing it as the remedy. He was a missionary after all. But perhaps he hadn't heard about the huge war that happened when Jesus' younger brother showed up just a few decades before. See episode number 24, Sunrise in Nanjing, if you want to revisit that epic tale of zealotry and delusion. At the very same cafe, a few nights later, two American men from the local university went on at length about the wicked ways of the Chinese. The fact that our Chinese co-workers were present didn't stop them. They also claimed that American universities had been taken over by, quote, dykes. So that gives us a clue about where these particular people were coming from. I didn't often hear such bigotry, but complaining about the local culture was indeed something of a pastime for the Lao Wai. Not just in the lower-tiered cities where I lived, but also in Shanghai, and I reckon everywhere. Foreigners, whether they loved living in China or hated it, complained about it. Was it simply culture shock? Or did they have a point? When I first went to Taiwan, the teacher trainer told us that. You will experience culture shock. A frustration with the people and the country, and yes, even your job. What's important to remember is that the job is fine. It's just culture shock. It's in your head. It's your problem. I was sceptical at the time. I thought he was gaslighting us, throwing us off the scent, making us doubt ourselves when issues arose with our crappy training school jobs. But there was an element of truth to it. Western social expectations simply aren't to be found in China or Taiwan, and why would they be? We looked at some of these Chinese cultural concepts a bit in The Grass That Bends When the Wind Blows On It, an episode about the importance of Confucius, episode number 15. It's an endless interest of mine. As an outsider, or even as an outsider who spent time on the inside, it's really quite difficult to get your head around the complex, subtle and ingrained concepts which give China its special cultural identity. And of course, when you're embedded in the culture... It's often a case of not seeing the wood for the trees. So when you ask Chinese about solid examples of, say, Confucianism or Guanxi or Mianzi in action, it's pretty much a chin-stroking moment in my experience. A telling story I heard was this. A man on a motorbike is at a crossroads and the light is red. He sees a policeman watching him by the side of the road and he jumps the red light. The next time he approaches the red light, he sees his auntie watching him by the side of the road. And on this occasion... He waits for the light to turn green. The moral of the story is that in China, relationships matter more than rules. The word for these networks of relationships is guanxi. 
and it informs interactions in families, in business, and in politics. It's absolutely vital in understanding how things work in China. By contrast, if the Western man is on a motorbike at the red light, he waits for it to turn green because those are the rules. Guanxi means that people jump queues, get cheap tickets for things, find favors in health and medicine, and get promotions and business deals. A friend of mine in nearby Suzhou was recently making a pure cashmere blanket, and her father called in a favor from a family friend who ran a textile factory. The factory boss managed to get my friend a load of hundred percent pure cashmere at mate's rates. A few months later, though, she realized it was thirty percent cashmere, seventy percent wool. The factory boss had swindled them, and actually charged her more than the market rate for what it really was. He agreed to take back the cashmere and return the money, but he made no acknowledgement of the attempted swindle. Guanxi is a powerful force, but it often comes up against good old-fashioned short-sighted greed. Another important concept is mianzi, which can be translated as face, as in losing face. One example of this is found in the restaurant, the way people, usually men, want to be the one to pay the bill. Sometimes tussles break out, each man clambering to get hold of the bill. The superior would not want to lose face by having someone else pay for the meal. Perish the thought. There was a brief story I told in the episode Temple Tantrums about the concept of qi, the life force which runs through all living things, central to Chinese medicine, and in that episode in particular, Falun Gong practice. When an aging mystic at a wedding went ahead and, without permission, I should add, healed a leg problem I had with his mind. It was unthinkable that I would tell the truth about his efforts, which is that the pain hadn't gone away. This is more than simple politeness. The respect given to the elderly healer is an act of giving face. Puncturing this suspension of disbelief would be a loss of face, not only for our mystic wizard, but also for the person who had invited me to the wedding. What Mianzi does practically is build up the trust which establishes Guanxi, the reciprocal relationship which greases the wheels. So much social work. Fibbing to an old man about his magical healing powers is a kind of white lie, and white lies are like a currency in China. So much so that I wonder if they have an inflationary effect. The white lie I heard most was people lying to their grandparents about why they couldn't visit them, being either too busy with studies or too busy with work. Neither of which was true. Often the real reason they couldn't visit was perfectly reasonable in my eyes: going to a meal with colleagues or. Stuck at the other end of the city and exhausted after a trip, I mean, I'd tell my nan that. But no, the tried and true white lie was better than the truth in this situation, and that was just something I didn't understand. In a work environment such as a school, the foreign teacher's inability to tell white lies is one of the big headaches for Chinese management. If they would just bite their tongues or say what's expected, this would be a harmonious little world for everyone, even if no problems ever got solved. But no. The foreigners saw the problems and they spoke about them. Sometimes with good intentions, other times just to troll the management. In my school, many of us were new teachers, and the ones who'd been around the block longer and should have known better, Eddie, I'm looking at you. Well, they were too cynical to be smart about it. Phil from Quebec was different, but it suited his natural temperament to be easygoing. He was hardly someone who'd worked out how things got done in China and was playing the game with strategy. There was, however, one guy who seemed to have worked it out. 
He'll be joining us in a few episodes. Anyway, in a society which has such an emphasis on the importance of face, there can be few more powerful tools of punishment than that of humiliation. That's why the degrading dunce hats and struggle sessions endured by the perceived enemies of Mao during the Cultural Revolution were so pernicious. Going through that kind of shit would be horrible wherever you are, but in China, well, the fact that suicide was often thought a better option tells you just how bad it really was. Occasionally there are modern reports about humiliation being used as a tool of punishment in modern businesses. Examples include a beauty products company in Shandong forcing employees to crawl on their hands and knees down a busy street in 2019. Punishment for not hitting sales targets. A man at the front walked with a flag, which had the company's name on it, as if this were a moment of great pride for them, almost a parade. Well, the police came and stopped that one. It wasn't the first documented example in recent years of white-collar workers crawling around public areas to appease the sadistic instincts of their dissatisfied boss. In one instance, they had to do laps around a lake, the gravel path eating through their suits at the knees and leaving them bleeding. And in 2018, it emerged that one company's employees were being forced to eat cockroaches when their targets were missed. This was just one of a number of inventive humiliations that failing employees were forced to endure at this home improvement company in Zun'i. Others included drinking cups of urine and getting a public whipping by the boss. This one was simply too much and prison sentences were handed out. No such justice at the tech company in Zhengzhou, which during this very summer, 2022, was making employees eat raw eggs for missing targets. What law is preventing you from eating a raw egg? An intern was told when he complained to HR about this rule. Which, to be fair, was written in the employee handbook. For more stories like this from China and around the world, visit oddityCentral.com. Lu Xun, one of the fathers of modern Chinese literature, whose work is still studied in schools, satirized Chinese society in the early 20th century. He knew of Arthur H. Smith's works, the colonial Christian that I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, and he encouraged others to read about how the Chinese were viewed by outsiders. Lu used metaphor, like a madman saying the command to eat people, in ancient texts, to describe how old ideologies were preventing Chinese society flourish. For Lu Xun, it was only through the eyes of the madman that the reality of society was seen. And it was a society where people ate each other. The entire 20th century, from the Xinhai Revolution which overthrew the Qing Dynasty in 1911, through the new culture movement which began that decade, to Sun Yat-sen's and Mao Zedong's contrasting universal ideologies. Well, all of this can be seen as China's huge reckoning with its ancient cultural baggage. But even after the most radical of revolutions, the old ways still infuse Chinese society to this day. Back in the day, imperial rulers of China were seen as having the so-called mandate of heaven to rule their people. Communist leaders are not so different. The inevitable swing of history has afforded them the position of being father figures for their citizens. They expect to be respected and not questioned. Confucianism puts hierarchy in all areas of life. Respect goes to the family elders and the men. In my own department at the school, the only male teacher was the boss of all of the female teachers. In the Chinese language, siblings have different words depending on their relative ages. The older brother is ge ge, younger is didi. Older sister is jie jie, younger is mei mei. Mei mei is at the bottom. 
She gets less respect, less educational investment, less care, although this tradition is waning in the big cities. In her book, Wild Swans, which is required reading for anyone who wants to understand a lot of women in China, Jun Chang noted that her great-grandmother, being poor and the second daughter, was simply called number two girl, Arya Tou. China has a surplus of men because female babies have been historically unwanted and were more likely to be aborted, abandoned or killed. Opium addicts in the 19th century were known to sell their daughters for a fix. For about a thousand years, footbinding was a Chinese custom inflicted on women, a symbol of status and beauty. The repeatedly broken and bent toes were always hidden away in dinky little lotus shoes, so people couldn't see the rotting, peeling flesh underneath. Women who endured this pain their entire lives actively enforced the custom on their own daughters and granddaughters, rationalising that the shame of not doing it would be worse than the pain of doing it. The culture and the laws began to turn against footbinding in the 20th century, as China tried to work out a way of relinquishing the aspects of their traditions which were deemed to have held them back and cost them so dearly, although many lingered on in the countryside. Mao Zedong may have said that women hold up half the sky, but he also called them a nonsense and offered to send 10 million women to America just to get rid of a few. Communism was supposed to be the great equaliser, but to this day, women are a rare sight at the top of the party and business. Male babies are still preferred. This particular problem could come back to bite China, which is facing a demographic time bomb. That's not to say that the Maoist years haven't left their mark. Women's rights improved during those years, and footbinding and polygamy was stigmatised and banned. Divorce was made legal, although not always achievable for those in traditional communities, but status remained central to Chinese social life. One of the finest ways to secure your wealth and status is to, as the saying goes, enter the government, become rich. Powerful positions in China are pretty much all taken by men, and it's well known that uh, those in the elite indulge a bit, or a lot, of something on the side. Twas ever thus, you might say. Many a prince of yore had a life shortened by an unfortunate infection of the nether regions. Mao Zedong was a voracious womanizer, and he never brushed his teeth. Best not think about it. In 2012, power, sex, and ruthlessness combined into the most dramatic story of Chinese politics since the Deng Xiaoping era. It's the case of Bo Xilai. Bo was of the same generation as Xi Jinping, the son of the Communist Party veteran Bo Yibo, a connection that, combined with his charisma and good looks, made him the perfect princeling for CCP leadership. As a youngster, Bo lived at Zhongnanhai, Beijing's government compound next door to the Forbidden City. He later became the popular mayor of the port city of Dalian, in China's northeast. He was always a rogue, suspected of knowing where the bodies were buried, literally, and with a bottomless desire for women. Being married never got in the way of that. But his second wife, Gu Kailai, gave as good as she got. Their combined ambition and ruthlessness would be their undoing. So tune in next time for that story, after which we'll get back to the school to consider how these cultural traditions, the hierarchy and competition and shame operate in more humble settings. <laughs>